it's good to be with all of you here. As you can see, we're in Revelation 7. Now, recall when we were in Revelation chapter 6, we had seen the wrath of God was poured out. And those who were under the wrath, they asked the question, who is it that can stand? And so when we got into Revelation 7, we saw that there were two groups of servants that can indeed stand before God because they're in Christ. One is the 144,000. They are, prim- they're, well, not primarily, they're all Jews of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're people on earth during the tribulation period. But we also have the multitude. And these multitude are people that have been murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they are now in heaven. And so I want to reiterate that the multitude and the 144,000 are not the same. Replacement theologians who want to replace Israel with the church will try to claim that they are one and the same. Let me give you again three indicators why they are different. Number one, the 144,000 are a definite number. It gives you the number. How many? Well, 144,000. Well, how many do we have in the great multitude? Well, we don't know. It's an indefinite number. In fact, John, as you'll see in the next slide, he said the multitude was so great it it couldn't be counted. And so there's an indefinite number when it comes to the multitude. Number two, the 144,000 are from the 12 tribes of Israel, whereas the great multitude are from every nation. And you get the idea that, yes, every nation would imply Israel as well, but it's primarily Gentile. Number three, the 144,000 are prepared for imminent peril. That is peril that comes upon the whole world. In fact, when we get to Revelation chapter 14, you're going to see a proleptic look at the millennial kingdom, and the 144,000 will be with Jesus on Mount Zion, on the Mount of Olives. That's, what the, that's where they'll be. Well, then we see that the great multitude are safe and secure. Why? Because they've already died. Remember, what did Jesus say in John 10, 28? He says, fear Don't fear him who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so there's only so much that the world can do to us. And that's what we see here with the great multitude. They're safe and secure in heaven. And so I think these differences are too difficult to overcome in order to claim that the 144,000 and the great multitude are the same. Okay, now let's begin with the great multitude there before the throne. Let's read the passage. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, it begins saying, After these things... Now, let's just stop there. Remember when we see that phrase, John uses after these things to show us that he's now coming to a new vision. And so that's another tip off that, yes, these aren't the same people, the 144,000. They're a different group because we're seeing something different now. So after these things, he says, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. That's an indefinite number. And where are they from? Well, they're from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, notice here, it says in the, or I should say the red highlighted portion, that this multitude is from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, that does not imply, as some universalists have claimed, that this means everyone's saved. Okay, in fact, notice the term from. I wonder if I can point on the screen here. Yeah, there we go. Notice from. That comes from the preposition ek. Here it's used in a partitive sense. It would mean that there are some from every nation and tribe and tongue. 
Now, the reason we know that is contextually. Turn your Bibles ahead to Revelation chapter 11, verse 9. And what I'm going to show you is that identical phrase is used of those who celebrate the death of the two witnesses. Now, who are the two witnesses? Well, they're God's prophets who are preaching the gospel. And so it just shows you that you can have some from every tribe, nation, and people that belong to God, but then there's others who hate the things of God and they hate the gospel. So notice here in Revelation 11, 9, we'll read all, probably to verse 10 here. Revelation 11, 9, the two witnesses were witnessing, they were killed. It says, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Notice it goes on to say in verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth, now let's stop there. Remember, that's a phrase that always has to do with the unregenerate. So we know then that this phrase, the tribes, people from every nation, tribe, and people and language, it certainly is being used here of what? Unbelievers in Revelation chapter 11. Here it's being used of believers. So those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so again, we don't have universalism here. We have a particular group of people, believers in Jesus Christ from all the nations that are now secure before the throne. In fact, notice their standing, very important term. The term standing comes from histemi. I don't know if there's a connection. Think about a standing. Think of your immune system standing. What do you get to keep your immune system from being overly powerful? You get an antihistamine. It makes it stand down, right? It suppresses your immune system. So standing here means that these people are able to stand before God. Why? Because they're in right relationship with him. Now, how are we in right relationship with God? As Bob was saying, through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. That's how they can stand. Now, this brings back... The question that the unregenerate had asked in Revelation 6. So think about all the wrath is being poured out. The unregenerate even finally get, hey, this is the wrath of God. They say, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to what? Stand. And so now we see the answer to that. Well, the great multitude can stand. But I made the claim that the 144,000, remember last week that we looked at? They could stand as well. Why? Well, we know that in Revelation 14, 1. We'll see that in the future here, where John says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. So with the Lamb, that's Jesus, standing on Mount Zion are the 144,000. So who can stand during this tribulation period? Well, anyone who comes to Jesus Christ. Now, within this tribulation period, God has different roles. Some are just going to be martyred and taken to heaven, but others are going to be able to live and they're going to be witnesses for his glory during the tribulation period and that's what you see more in keeping with the 144,000 but both are unable to stand now how can they stand well because they're clothed in white robes and palm branches are in their hands now this imagery is very beautiful it reminds us of both righteousness but also victory so think of the white robe symbolizes our righteousness that we have before God. And the palm branches remind us of victory that we have with God. 
Now, why do I say that? Well, think about when Jesus Christ came in during his triumphal entry. What were people waving? They're waving palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna. means Yahweh is salvation. Save us now is what they're saying. Save us now. Save us now. And so palm branches are a symbol of the victory that God ultimately gives. And so that's what they have. Now, what's interesting is I think what's being depicted here is imagery from the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'm going to show you that later, proof of that, that in the imagery behind the great multitude and their being secure is the Feast of Tabernacles. From the Mishnah, which is a Jewish source, it's part of their oral law that's now recorded, what they would claim is that there was no more joyous occasion anywhere on the planet than was seen by those who were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles because it was a celebration of God dwelling with his people that looked back to the time of the Exodus where God dwelt with his people through the desert, remember, through the wilderness. But it also looks forward to a day where in heaven, in the millennial kingdom, and in the eternal states, God also will dwell with his people. And so this is a preliminary look at that. In fact, turn your Bibles real quickly. I'll just give you a look. Revelation 7.15. Further evidence that the Feast of Tabernacles is at play. We'll come to this in a few slides, but I want you to see it now. Revelation 7.15. It says, For this reason, John says, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. So here you have God tabernacling with his people, and so that's the background. Now, what do they cry out? Well, these saved ones by the blood of the Lamb, they cry out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, the participle that's used there is in the present tense. Present tense, we as English uh, readers have to think about the present tense not just reflecting something that's currently ongoing during this vision, but the emphasis is on the action. It's seen in process. So, If you were going to think about a parade, if I describe the parade in process as if I was in the parade, that's like the present tense. It's ongoing. But if I'm a newspaper reporter that looks at all the confetti and everything after the parade, that would be more like the aorist. I just see it as something that occurred. Or maybe you might even say it was the perfect tense. But the present tense has to do with this ongoing process. The reason that's significant here is it means that they keep crying this out. They keep saying salvation to our God. Now, let me ask the question of all of you. Why do they say salvation to our God? Does God need to be saved? No, of course not. It belongs to him, doesn't it? Salvation is what uniquely belongs to God. And that's why God could say in Isaiah 43, 11, he says, I am Yahweh there is no Savior besides me. Amen. Now, if Jesus is our Savior then, and he's called that often, well, what does that mean? Well, he's Yahweh. He's God. Yeah, Brian. That Feast of Tabernacles is the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, which is going on right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you. It's exactly right. It's in the fall. The seventh month of their year, it's called Tishri, and the 15th day all the way to the 21st. But yeah, it's our September, October, the beginning of October. So it's right now. It's uh, the harvest feast, yeah. And by the way, Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes you'll see in your Bibles, it's referred to the Feast of Ingathering. 
Sometimes it's the Feast of Booths. But so beautiful was the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the favorite of the Jews because they're celebrating victory. There is no greater celebration than the celebration of victory, is there? And that's what they love to celebrate. And so sometimes, like in 1 Kings 8, it's just referred to as the feast. That's how prominent a feast it was. They could just call it the feast. That's how beautiful Tabernacles was. And we'll, we'll come back to that. So thank you, Brian. Very good. Okay, now let's keep moving on then. They're crying out. Now we're going to see the angels cry out. But we're going to be asking the question, where do they come from? Where do these great multitude come from? Well, we get the answer here. Revelation seven eleven through 14, it says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So you notice the amen twice. Then in verse 13, they say, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, notice in the very beginning of this passage, You have angels now. In fact, it says all of the angels are standing around the throne. And notice they're also around the elders. And we define the elders to be angels as well. And we also know that the four living creatures are angels. So you literally have every sort of angel around the throne. And they're falling prostrate before the face of God. And they're giving him worship. And notice it begins by saying, Amen. So the amen, remember we say truly, that's what it means. It's an affirmative saying this is truly of God. Now, when the angels say amen the first time, they're affirming when human beings in the previous slide, the previous verses were saying salvation belongs to our God. They're saying amen. They're saying that's exactly right. That's true. Now, let's think about Jesus when he teaches. Normally, a rabbi, when he would teach in Jesus' day, He would teach, and then his disciples, they would say, Amen, Rabbi, Amen. This is truly a word from God. But Jesus is so authoritative that he often would say, Amen, Amen, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he would give you the teaching. Why? Well, because he is God. And he needed no one to attest to the fact that it was true. And that's why the people marveled that he taught with such authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees did. That's one of the reasons. So they say amen. And then what do they cry out? They cry out blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. I was going to go through each of these for the sake of time. I will not. But I just want to affirm that all of these things here, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, these are things that belong to God properly because of who he is and what he's done. Some of these things are things that he can also give to his people. For example, wisdom. We know in the book of James that those who ask for wisdom will be given wisdom by God. But think about blessing. God is the source of all blessing. God needs nothing in and of himself. He is completely sufficient. He's a non-contingent being. He doesn't need anyone. And so he is blessed by his mere existence, but he's also the source to all of us for all blessing. Notice the term glory. Just one other one. Glory in Hebrew is very neat. It's kavoth. It means weightiness. 
And what's so beautiful is God deserves weightiness. Think about that. When someone comes in the door, and if it was, for instance, let's say you were in the Navy in World War II, and all of a sudden Chester Nimitz, the Admiral of the Pacific Fleet, came in, you can imagine there'd be some hearts that would patter. There's a weightiness to Chester Nimitz. Or perhaps you're in the Third Army and General Patton came in. General Patton, blood and guts himself is in. And your heart would patter. There was weightiness to him. But dear ones, who's the weightiest of them all? The Holy One of Israel. And the problem is that all of us in our sinful deeds and actions, we've tried to steal weightiness from God. We've tried to steal kavoth from him. Do you remember Daniel? He cries out in Daniel chapter 9. In fact, let me turn to it. I just want you to see this beautiful prayer. Daniel's concern, and this is what we see fulfilled in the 70th week, is that God would have a zeal and restore the glory to his name. So turn to Daniel 9. To me, it's one of my, I think, the most beautiful prayers in all of the Bible. Let's just start for the sake of time in verse 16. So Daniel 9, 16. By the way, the prayer before this is beautiful. So read it before you go to bed tonight. But listen to what Daniel says. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Let's stop there. What's a byword? Yeah, they're just ridiculed. So what happened when they were ridiculed because of their sin? Well, it it stole the kavoth, the weightiness of Yahweh's name. People are ridiculing. Who are these people? Yeah, they belong to Yahweh. Who is this Yahweh? And so it stole glory from his name. So listen to the zeal that Daniel has for his name. He says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Making your face shine upon something, that's a way of saying, make your favor return. God's favor will return. That's what he's asking for. Verse 18, he says, O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our plea because you, before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What do we see in the book of Revelation in the third chapter? The faithful church of Philadelphia, those who are faithful to the gospel, they were given God's name. They're going to represent his glory, his weightiness, his kavoth. Okay, so my point in saying this is all of these attributes or these things that are said, they belong to God, but they also stem from him. All right, now, notice here that the elders... In verse 13, it says, They were saying to John, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? Now, his response is very godly. He says, Well, my Lord, you know. Which means John doesn't know, right? John is pleading ignorance. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out 
of the Great Tribulation. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a moment, but how many know that the Great Tribulation is not occurring now? Okay? We are not living during the Great Tribulation. Good, good. This is very good. Because there are many commentators who will say that that's now, that that's the church age that we're living in, and I'll show you why that's not true. But I, first of all, want to wrestle with what's on the bottom. Notice he goes on to say, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what we have there is what's called an oxymoron. Have you ever heard, um, they'll have in the commercials, they'll say, jumbo shrimp. And you're like, well, shrimp or jumbo, it doesn't go together, right? It's an oxymoron. Uh, What would be another example? Well, another example here would be that you somehow made your clothes white by dipping them in blood. And so what that does is it shocks the reader by making you realize that the issue isn't the color, but the righteousness. It symbolizes something, doesn't it? And so this should bring us back to the Old Testament when time and time again, the people of God had to be cleansed, their garments. It was a symbol of them being cleansed on the inside. And I want to show you that all the way back in Exodus 19. So turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. This is where the people are being prepared for the descent of Yahweh at Mount Sinai. So Exodus 19, verses 10 through 11. Exodus 19, 10 through 11. Notice it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and make them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Then Moses went, and I'm I'm skipping to verse 14 now. Notice in verse 14 it says, Then Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they wash their clothes. So again, this washing is often a symbol of being prepared for God. And so ultimately, we're washed by being clothed in Christ. All those who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ, as it says in Galatians 3.27. Now, turn your Bibles ahead again in the Old Testament. Go to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3 you'll see a reference to Joshua, the high priest. And he is a sinner. He's a sinful man. And so he has dirty clothes. Now, remember Joshua, his name is the same as Jesus. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. And what's very beautiful in Zechariah 3 is you have the high priest of Israel. He can't do any mediation or work for Yahweh because he has these soiled clothes. But who is the one who cleans his clothes? It's the angel of Yahweh. Now, who is the angel of Yahweh? Well, that's the pre-incarnate son. That's really Jesus Christ, isn't it? And so he's the one who gives Joshua, Yeshua, clean clothes and showing himself to be the true Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. So Zechariah 3.3, it says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, and he stood there before the angel. The angel spoke up to those standing all around, and he said, Remove his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, I have freely forgiven your iniquity and will dress you in fine clothing. That's exactly how any of us are saved. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ through the 
through believing in the Son. And that's what Bob was saying. That's what we need. We need the gospel. We don't need religion. We don't need pomp and circumstance and a holy man. We don't need any of those things. What we need is the blood of the Lamb to make ourselves clean. Now, let's go back to the question. Who are these? Where do they come from? The angel ends up answering the question. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now, I mentioned that there are many commentators who will claim that the great tribulation is the period of time that we're living in now. So the way they would understand this historically is that as people die or they're martyred, what have you, they end up going to heaven, obviously, and therefore that's what John is describing. But realize the great tribulation is a period of time that was foretold in the prophets that was associated exclusively with the day of the Lord. And we should know that as good readers of the text of Revelation. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 6, all of the seal judgments, we laid out that they were synonymous with the events that Jesus had forewarned about, which was associated with the 70th week of Daniel. Remember, we laid that out time and time and time again. The six seals, remember, some of you got probably sick of it, but I wanted to show that to you because that has to be your worldview, that when Jesus talking about the judgments in his eschatology discourse, the amount of all of it, whether it be Mark 13 or Matthew 24, he's talking about events associated with the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, that's how we know. Now, I want to give you some other proof, though. Uh, and consider this. Think about Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 9. Turn your Bible there. I want you to see that this was predicted in the Old Testament, this period of great distress, the greatest distress that would ever come upon the planet. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 9. By the way, we also know this as you're turning to that passage. Think about Revelation 3.10. It's a very important verse. Remember, Jesus says, because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Well, when you get into Revelation chapter 6, that hour begins. That's the 70th week of Daniel. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 shows us that, no, this isn't the church age. This is the tribulation period. Now, here's Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 9. And this is a prediction that one day God would be faithful, even despite the fact that his people were not, to save them. But it would be through a great distress. Jeremiah 30, verse 1, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now, let's stop there. That's why we know this is primarily in the future, because as you're going to see, all of these promises have never yet been fulfilled in history, and they have never possessed the land in safety. But notice he goes on in verse 4. He says, now, these are the words which Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. So notice it's both of them. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Let's stop there. Remember when Jesus in his Olivet Discourse, he lists all of these. You're going to have all of these different things like warfare, famine, pestilence. 
And he says, these are the beginning of birth pangs. That's what he says in his Olivet Discourse in both Matthew 24 and also in Mark 13. The term birth pangs is Odin. It's the technical term for the beginning of the day of the Lord. Well, notice the same term is being used here in the Septuagint. Notice the term childbirth. It's labor pains. You see, that's what it's going to be like. The world will come to a time where it goes into labor pains. And after the seven years of labor pains, what is birthed is the Messianic age. Jim Palmer, who is with us today, and I'm so glad that he is, he always would tell me, and I love this saying, he would say to me, you know, Eric, we're not in the labor pains now. We're in the discomforts of the pregnancy. That's exactly right. That's the way we should think of it. My wife, we were watching Bill Cosby. I think the guy's a stitch. We were laying down one day, and it was five weeks out before we were going to have our boy. She was pregnant. We're laying in bed, and all of a sudden, her water broke. And I remember telling her to put it back in, okay, because we weren't ready for all that business. And then I started packing sandwiches because I thought, well, this we could really be in for it. We're going to be in the hospital for a while. <laughs> we're in for it, right? She was doing all the labor, and I'm worried about myself eating, but I shouldn't admit to all this. But then what, we, what, what I remember is thinking, now she went into labor pains, right? So all that time, she had a lot of discomforts of the pregnancy, but wham, all of a sudden, we were watching, out of the blue, no warning, labor pains came. That's what the tribulation period is like. That's why Jesus uses it, because you don't always know when those labor pains are going to come. They just come upon you suddenly. Okay, so anyway, I'm sorry. Now, that's in verse 6. Are we, are we there? Yeah. Okay, so let's keep going. Notice he says, And why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, There's none like it. There's none like that day. That's how horrific it will be. That's the great tribulation. He says, And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But, now here's an adversative, but he will be saved from it. So it will lead to salvation, even though it's the most horrific time ever. Well, that's exactly what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. Verse 8, it shall come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve Yahweh their God, and who else? David their king, whom I will raise up for them. That's a reference to the Messiah. So they're going to serve the Messiah. So the time of Jacob's distress is the same time period that's being referred to here. It's a time that has never been seen in human history. Okay, now for the sake of time, I better keep rolling here. There's another claim that people will make. This comes from the pre-wrath camp. This is Marv Rosenthal. Look at how he translates Revelation 7.14. He translates, translates it this way. On page 185 of his book, he says, These are they who come out of the great tribulation. Now, notice how punctuated that is. They who came out, right? They came out. It seems like it's a done deal. Now, the reason he prefers that translation is because of his theology. He believes that the rapture occurs somewhere in the last three and a half years. So make sure we're all on the same page. Anytime you see this diagram on one of my slides... I'm referring to the 70th week of Daniel. Whoops. Arrow keeps coming up. All right. The 70th week of Daniel would begin here. This would be the first three and a half years. This would be the last three and a half years. So seven years total, correct? 
Well, in the pre-wrath view, they believe that the rapture happened somewhere in the last three and a half years. And so they believe this is the reference to the rapture in the book of Revelation. They believe Revelation 7.14 refers to the rapture of all believers. All right? Now, what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, I think the ESV renders this present participle better than does Marv Rosenthal. In fact, the ESV, I think, does a dynamite job. Notice it says in the ESV version, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. Now, notice the difference. This would imply it's an ongoing process, perhaps during the whole length of the Great Tribulation, which is the three and a half years at the end of Daniel's 70th week. Now, why is that preferred? Well, because it's a present passive participle. Remember, what does present tense refer to? Action that's seen in process. It's not a snapshot of a one-time thing. It's something that's seen in process. Now, turn your Bibles to Revelation 7.14. I want you to see why some would reject my claim. And what they would say is, and this is true grammatically, oftentimes the participle is tied to verbs. That is, it's, it's modified by the verbs it's surrounded by. Okay, and I want you to see the verbs that it's surrounded by. Notice in Revelation 7, 14, it says, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed. That's the first verb. They have washed is aorist, active, indicative. Notice the next verb, made them white. And they've also made them white in the blood of the lamb. Made them white is also aorist, active, indicative. So some scholars will say, well, that participle, has to be modified by those verbs. And so you don't have a true present tense here. Here's why they're wrong. Contextually, we have a reason why the participle, in a sense, should stand alone. Notice that these people, the verbs that are being described to them, where it says that they have washed and they have made them white, that's a reference to their salvation. When are you saved? The moment you come to Jesus Christ by faith. Is that necessarily the same time that they're being martyred out. No. How many in here have been Christian at least 10 years? I would assume, yeah, the, the majority of you have. Well, think about it. Let's just say there was somebody who was writing about you coming out of this age because of your being martyred. Would that necessarily mean that it happened at the moment of your conversion when you were washed in the blood of the Lamb? Well, of course not. It might have happened years later. And in the same way, John is describing two different things. On the one hand, they washed themselves, they came to faith, but they are the ones who are presently coming out of the tribulation. And so what he's describing is an ongoing martyrdom that's, yes, it's related to the fact that they're believers, but it doesn't mean that it happened at the same time. In other words, it's not that they came to faith and they were martyred, but perhaps they came to faith and it was weeks or months later. Then they were martyred. So the participle, therefore, should stand alone, and therefore it should have that present tense. That's why the ESV is to be preferred, and that's another reason why we have to reject that this is a reference to the rapture. So the way I would see it instead, when we look at Revelation 7.14, where it says these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation, what you have is, think about it, your, the Great Tribulation happens right here, and what you have are people being martyred constantly through it. And so they're coming out. They keep getting killed. Now, we see evidence of this in the Olivet Discourse. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, verses 4 through 9. Again, Matthew chapter 24, 
verses 4 through 9. I want you to see that this follows Jesus' pattern that he gave to us in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 4 through 9. Remember in Matthew 24, 4, Jesus answering the question of the disciples. It says, Jesus answered them, Watch out that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Now, let's stop there. The first seal, we had the coming of Antichrist and his coalition. So that fits in very nicely with what Jesus is referring to. Well, then he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's verse 6. Well, we saw that in Revelation 6. We saw the wars, sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, all of those things. So he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Make sure that you are not alarmed, for this must happen. But the end is still to come, for nation will rise up its arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, let's stop there. All of those are associated with the events in the first six seals in Revelation 6. We saw them almost in order verbatim. All of a sudden, then he says in verse 8, all of these things are the beginning of, there's our term, Odin, birth pains. So the first three and a half years is considered the beginning of birth pains. Right? Now, notice what he says in verse 9. Obviously, you're leaving the beginning of the birth pangs. And then he says, then they will hand you over to be persecuted and will kill you. Well, lo and behold, in Revelation 7, we see, sure enough, they're being taken out of the Great Tribulation because they're being killed. And it happens during that whole length of time. People are being martyred. Now, does that mean there's nobody killed in the first three and a half years? Well, of course not. But there's going to be an intensified persecution in the last three and a half years. And Jesus even shows us that. So remember in the Olivet Discourse then, in Matthew 24, 9, he talks about all the way to verse 14, 24, 14, the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Well, then by way of recapitulation, he brings you back to the midpoint, which is the uh, abomination of desolation, which is right here. And then he focuses on it all the way to verse 28. So the Great Tribulation receives the most ink by Jesus. And that's why Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 21 through 22. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Let's stop there. When we were reading Jeremiah 30, didn't Jeremiah say it was the worst time ever? There was none like it? Jesus is saying the same thing, and what does he link it to? The Great Tribulation, the same thing that John is talking about. So it's the worst time period that it will ever happen. By the way, you can't have two worse. You can't have the worstest. Okay? I have to tell my six-year-old, he uses language like that. That's the worstest, Dad. Well, no, it's the worst, but it can't be the worstest, right? If you had a worstest, then one of them wasn't the worst, right? Verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, how will they be cut short? Well, because at the end of the three and a half years, Jesus brings his kingdom. And he cuts that time period short. So when we ask the question, where do they come from, this great multitude? They're coming out of the great tribulation and happens during the whole time period. Okay, that's how I think we should understand this passage. Okay, and again, the present tense participle clues us in on that. They're coming out. Um, sometimes it's given a substantival force, the ones who are coming out. But nonetheless, it's the idea that they're coming, they're in process. It's not a snapshot as the pre-rapture view would have you believe. All right? 
Now, with that, is there any questions with that thus far, Eric? Oh, yeah. Jim. If you're martyred in the first half of Daniel's tribulation period, the 70th week, yeah. first half, are you included in the great multitude? It would seem to indicate that you're not. You know, um, I, I think obviously you'll be there, but I think the accentu- what's being accentuated is the great tribulation. But it doesn't mean that if you've died before that you're not going to be there. Yeah, yep. So, um, and in fact, that's, what's interesting is you'll see that even in Revelation chapter 20, when those who have been beheaded, they're raptured or they're, I should say, they're given their resurrected bodies. But I would, say, I would assume that those who had died in other ways um, during that time period, let's just say you happened to die of natural causes as a believer and you made it to the end of Daniel's 70th week, I would assume you're given a resurrected body then as well. But yeah, that's being, what's being accentuated is the Great Tribulation. But yeah, good question. Yep. All right, any other questions or comments? Yeah, Steve. Where are the 144,000 on that timeline? Is it, oh, I'm sorry. Is Let it, me back okay, up. The, okay. The man of lawlessness is revealed, and does the, the church is gone, and the, the gospel is reinstated with the 144,000, or maybe you could shed yeah. some light on that. Let me try to point to this. So the great multitude that we're looking at here, they're going to be martyred. They're taken out, and so they go to heaven during the last three and a half years. The 144,000 are able to stand. For some reason, they're enabled supernaturally by God to stand as his witnesses during that time period. And so when we get to Revelation 14, it'll say that 144,000 are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Remember the question, who is able to stand? Well, these are able to stand before God. Standing has to do with you're able to not be judged by God, right? So the 144,000 are going to be on earth during this time period while these people are going to be in heaven. So does that answer the question? No, I would assume that there is. I would assume that because people are being saved. Okay. Yeah. So we're not given every detail. Remember, even in the book of Revelation, we're not given every single detail. So you have to assume that, yes, the gospel is being proclaimed. And perhaps it's even through tapes or we don't know. You know, I'm just... Um, you know, you're, there's going to be a lot of things that were recorded. Bob has a lot of data out there. And the CIC articles, those CIC articles are going to come in handy. So there's all sorts of different ways that people will come to faith. Yep. So, but yeah, the focus here, I think, is now we're shifting to the last three and a half years. And so think about how significant the Great Tribulation is because we're starting to focus now on that already in Revelation chapter 7. Yep. So the first six seals, I think, really should be seen as taking us up to the midpoint. And then... That interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal is really bringing us into the Great Tribulation. Now, next time, by the way, I want to get in. We don't have time. Uh, It's just so exciting. I wanted you to see the Feast of Tabernacles and how it's being alluded to here, but we'll have to wait for next time. I apologize. Uh, Next time, I'm just going to bring my computer every time now in case we have uh, a problem with the password again. But we're going to get into the Feast of Tabernacles, and you're going to see how God desires to tabernacle with his people. And there's some beautiful imagery that ties in to what Jesus does during his earthly ministry and what he's going to do for us. Let me just say it this way. The Feast of Tabernacles, it looks back to a time when God tabernacled with his people in the wilderness, but it ultimately looks forward to a time when he will tabernacle forever with his people. 
where you will be provided drink, you'll be provided food, and you'll be provided protection from your enemies, just as God would have done for the people of Israel had they trusted in him. But it's going to be fulfilled, and we're seeing that being foreshadowed by those who are in heaven. But it ultimately will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal state. So with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can look into these things about the future and we can be comforted because we know that those who trust in Christ can stand before you. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that those who come to your Son by faith will one day tabernacle with you forever. We can't wait for that day where we have no more need, that we're glorified. No longer will we sin against you, but we'll represent your name will bring you honor and glory, kavoth, great weightiness that you deserve. Lord, we long for this day, and so we say with all the saints, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.